You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Seven and a half felt a little bit like being a young writer again. I can't, physically, I can't call myself that, but in writing Seven and a Half, I've, I've felt that, like, kind of, let's just go by instinct in a way. Seven and a Half was a way of me trying to think of what it was about being a writer that I enjoyed. What, it, what was it that I wanted to do? Welcome back to Books and Ideas at Montalto, a Wheeler Centre podcast. In this episode, Angela Savage interviews Christos Chalkas about his new novel, Seven and a Half, exploring questions of beauty, writing and technology. Hi everyone, my name's Angela Savage. I'm a writer and I work in the public library sector, as you may have guessed from my cardigan. Um, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we're gathered today, pay my respects to elders past and present, and encourage everyone here today to read the writing of First Nations writers in this country. Um, It's something that is a very simple and practical way to engage in truth-telling in this country. It is my enormous pleasure, and I'm very grateful to the Wheeler Centre and Montalto, to be here today to interview a man who probably needs no introduction, Christos Chalkas, who is one of this country's most beloved and successful writers, winner of multiple prizes, most recently the Melbourne Prize for Literature, which recognises a body of work and what a body of work it is. Christos is the author of uh, a collection of short stories, Merciless Gods. He has written plays, he writes essays, he frequently reviews films, and if we consider the heft of his latest novel, Seven and a Half, you could say he is the author of Seven and a Half Novels, (laughs) joke I totally stole from Michael Williams, Um, which reminds me, Jamila, I will need that copy of Seven and a Half that I've left on the table, if you wouldn't mind bringing it over. And I thought I would tell you three, that I have have the great honour of being able to call Christos one of my closest friends. So I thought I would maybe tell you Ditto. <laughs> three things you might not know about Christos. <laughs> he uh, loves the Richmond Football Club. He loves I think his you mum. Know that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a wonderful cook. <laughs> um, so please join me in welcoming Christos. Thank you, Angela. That's, uh, that's very generous. Thank you to Angela, who is also a wonderful writer. And I, I noticed Mother of Pearl which is uh, one of my favourite novels of the last uh, period, of the last decade, really, is out there. And I would, um, if you haven't read it, I would ask you to, um, because I think it's a, it is a wonderful novel, Ange. It's a, and one of the great things about having... We, we've known each other for a long time. We've known each other before we were officially writers, though I think we wanted to write from a very young age. And one of the... Great things is having someone who understands what this world is like, but also understands what is important outside the literary world as well. As well. So, thank you for doing this. You are, and thank you to Montalto and the Wheeler Centre and to the wonderful staff here. The food was amazing. Thank you, thank Diana. You. Oh my God, absolutely. And look, this is typical of Christos's generosity as a writer that he would um, take the opportunity to mention my humble novel as well. Um, he is unique among, well, I used to run the Writers' Centre with Nick Brash here as my boss and um, let me tell you, writers are not by nature particularly generous people. I think, uh, I think for many reasons they need to be quite self-focused but Christos is a shining light in that regard um, in terms of the way he supports other writers and, uh, and people more broadly uh, and the way that you fight for justice, which is interesting because... Let us segue into talking about Seven and a Half. Let's start, actually, let's start with the origins of the book. Tell us how Seven and a Half came about. Uh, I can date this book in a way that I can't other books because it began on March 19th, early in the morning of uh, March 19th. And I know that because... 20, of 2020. 2020. <laughs> which is really important. Significant. Because... Uh, a, Ten days before that, on the, the 9th, my partner and I, Wayne, were flying over to the UK. Um, my previous novel had just come out there. I was going to do a week of publicity work and then we were going to celebrate our 35th anniversary, 
we'd hired a car in Glasgow and we were going to take five weeks to drive um, uh, through the UK, uh, Wales, Scotland, which is a place I really love, and, and see parts of England I'd never seen before. And we arrive in London on the 10th and we're, we're friends and we're doing what we're doing today. We're, we're sitting down and we're drinking and we're eating and we're hugging and we're catching up. And within a week, the whole world, as we all know, changed. Incredibly so. To the point in Scotland, which was, uh, you know, just waking up on a Sunday morning and going, reading the news on, um, on my laptop... Wayne was asleep and just waking him up and saying, let's go, let's get home. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm telling this story because it's really important to kind of work to, to get to where Seven and a Half came from. Uh, to cut it short, however, we were very lucky because we had booked for a travel agent that we got a flight out of Heathrow on that Thursday. And I'm saying we're lucky because when I called up our, our flight uh, carrier... There was, I couldn't get through, I couldn't get through. The website had crashed and then there was a recorded message on the phone that there was a nine and a half hour wait, which uh, that was how desperate the world had become. And, but we get the flight, we come back to Melbourne. Uh, I will never forget Doha Airport, the terror on everyone's faces. And part of that was that wanting to go home. And I've... I, uh, the, the moment that really stays with me is a young, very young woman. Um, uh, she, was, uh, she was on the phone. My French isn't great, but I, I knew enough. She was getting a flight to Lagos and she just kept saying to whoever was on the other line, other end of the phone, who I assume was a, a parent, I just want to go home, just howling, just terrified. And that's what I realised, that's when I realised that Australia was home. <laughs> the mm. world had you know, for all my long decades of questioning where is home, I realised when the, when the pande- pandemic hit and it kind of... I was going to say, it only took a global pandemic for you to realise where home was. And that's, it's, it's so interesting because this book is so much about home. Um, but, but tell us... I just let's to, go yeah, back to, yes. I, I don't, you don't know that... I didn't know that when I was beginning the book that that home was going to play such an important part. But when we did get home... Two weeks quarantine, thankfully before hotel quarantine, because I think that... Uh, and I woke up on that second day, which was the, the 20th of March, and started writing Seven and a Half. And I, uh, partly because we were in quarantine and we, you know, we, you couldn't move out of the house, it was almost like a little exercise I set myself. And I, I said, I'm going to try and write this new book and do, at the very least, 800 words a day. And that's how I began my... I began the novel, and I, I did that every day. First thing I'd do when I woke up in the morning was start work on it. I'd been writing another book called Resentment, which had been going nowhere. I, uh, it was... I just couldn't bring it to life. Um, so Seven and a Half was a way of me trying to think of what it was about being a writer that I enjoyed, what, it, what was mm. it that I wanted to do. Um, Reconnecting I, with the joy rather than the resentment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now, yeah. this, this book opens in, on the south coast of New South Wales, which I know is a place that's very precious to you um, and an incredibly beautiful part of the planet. Um, how many people here know the New South Wales south coast, the Sapphire Coast? You know what we're talking about? It's very gorgeous. And I wondered if that, given the context you've just described yourself as writing this book in... Was that also deliberate that you wanted to take yourself, take yourself in your imagination to that place, which is, you know, so you're in, you're in quarantine. Yes. You're, you're restricted to your own home in, in a suburban Melbourne. Uh, when I say, it's absolutely true what I said that uh, seven and a half began life from that moment of coming back and that, that exercise I'd set myself of just, what is it that you do, Chalkers, you write? You know, how do you keep your, your writing life going? You, 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 you write the words on the page. But clearly something about that, um, the world I wanted to explore in Seven and a Half was brewing away in that, that wonderful, wonderful phrase um, of Doris Lessing's fugging time which is that time when 
it looks like we're just sitting on the sofa doing nothing, but <laughs> but that's when I, ideas and thoughts come. And what that so to explain to people, Wayne and I fell in love in the South Coast, fell in love with the South Coast a long time ago when we were very young, and when you know Wayne had got a job in Canberra, and so if I didn't know that part of the world, and it had always been a, a a place very special to us. And then we were very fortunate um, 10 years ago that we got a place on the South Coast. So I've been going there as, and, and, and writing. And I had, I think the idea of writing a novel based there had, had also been percolating for, for mm. a long time. But that wasn't the novel Seven and a Half. It was another kind of novel. It was a family saga. Yeah. But I think all those elements came together at, the, at that point where I sat down. And it was sitting down at the kitchen table that first morning, uh, bringing up the laptop and, and just starting. starting. And I, it felt right that it would be the beach and it felt right that it would be a part of the world I loved. And I think that was because of that notion of home that... Um, that that was where I wanted to begin and end, if you like, the mm. The, mm. the the novel. So it's it's a it's a it's a really interesting book because it's you know what's sometimes kind of labelled as autofiction, which is that kind of liminal space between an autobiography and fiction, and it can be um, it can be kind of tricky territory for some readers. And in fact, you know, I think I've said to you quite openly. My first reading, I was really thrown because I know you so well. You've got a, a narrator called Christos. I've been to that place on the South Coast with Christos's typical generosity. It was given to me to finish my last novel um, in that space. And my, my mind had trouble escaping into the story because I kept, in my head, I was going, how much is fiction? How much is true? How much is, this, is Christos the person? How much of this is Christos the narrator? My second reading was an incredibly different experience where I felt really fully immersed in the story world. Um, and I'm, so I'm interested in your own experience of reading autofiction and then your decision to write autofiction. Do I, re I, I, I'm not being perversely, uh, perverse in saying this. I, I, the, the term autofiction is very new to me. Um, but I, th I love it. You've written autofiction without knowing you're writing <laughs> autofiction. <laughs> uh, but I've I've been really aware of one thing that gets. This is my old Grandpa Simpson side, right? I get really frustrated by the lack of historical knowledge, right? So, the book begins with a quote by one of my favourite writers, Jean Genet, the the French writer who whose work uh, is mid-20th century. Uh, now, the term autofiction wasn't around when Jean Genet began writing. He was the illegitimate son of a woman who was probably a prostitute in um, uh, the early 20th century. He spent a lot of his teenage life and young youth and adult life in prisons and wrote novels that are some of the most astounding novels in the French language. Um, and the character, the characters in Genet are Jean, they are Genet, but they're also something else. Uh, I was very lucky some time ago now, my, you know, COVID, like everything, has played with our sense of time, but I, I was, uh, there's a Writers on Writers series that Black Ink do where they ask writers to write on some of their favourite writers, and I did... Um, a book on Patrick White, and, I had, and I, the reason I chose White was I, two years before that, I thought, this is a, ridiculous that I don't know more about Patrick White. It was a woman in Greece who yelled at me, <laughs> said, you're Australian and you haven't read more Patrick White? You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> she said that. And I came back and, and discovered how wonderful a writer he was. But again, White is not an easy writer. You know, the, the notion of who the I in white is, particularly some of the, whether you're talking about Voss, um, uh, some of the more uh, uh, adventurous books or experimental books, they're, um, 
that they destabilise the notion of who is the author, who is the voice, who is the narrator, who is the character, the protagonist, right? That's part of what literature, what fiction has been doing for a very long, long time. In that same way, I was, uh, I did a year where I read all of Virginia Woolf's work and I was astounded by the risks that that person was taking so long ago. And I think that's what I mean about history. I'm not... Uh, it surprises me that people think it's a radical step to do what we're doing now because this has already been done in really interesting ways. I think what that love of the modernist novel gave me was a sense of trusting the reader because, you know, as a young person first encountering those books, they're really difficult and you have to do that work of, mm. okay, this isn't... You know, I love the novel for pleasure, right? One of my favourite uh, guilty... Oh, it's not a guilty pleasure. One of my favourite pleasures is Agatha Christie. <laughs> I love a novel like Five Little Pigs for the pleasure it can do as it can give you as a reader. But I, it was those. It was reading Genet, for example, when I was very young, that gave me an understanding of that there is a struggle you have to do in order to understand art. You know that it's not just given to you. Yes. Um, it's a contract between a, the author and the writer, which is something that you are quite. I think overt about in this book, but I don't want to give people the impression that it's a difficult read um, because it's actually a very beautiful read. And I want to talk with you yeah. about beauty because there's a... Do you want to jump in? Just really quickly because I, I know I can kind of ramble, but to get to your... I just... Sorry, Ange, just to get to the... You don't have to, to apologise to <laughs> To answer the question you asked... Uh, in terms of what I was trying to... the autofiction. And we'll get... I'm sure we'll get into this later. So much of the last ten years of being a writer has been about why are you writing? Do you have the right to write? Who has a right to tell stories? What is the... What does it mean to be a writer? And that contract or trust that I'm talking about myself and the reader is to say, well, look, actually... Every novel you're going to read at the moment, written in this time, contemporary fiction, is written by someone who has... Those questions are going round and round and round our, our heads. And it felt like... You wanted to bring the them out into the open. Them, yeah, yeah. That, that's what I wanted to do with yeah. Seven and a Half. Yep. And, and that is what you do. And you give us this kind of really privileged insight. And I remember you saying that you know, Wayne had, was reading one of the early drafts and he said, I want you to keep writing this because I'm learning what you do, hmm. which was just lovely. And um, so there is that kind of... I guess what's interesting and what, and what people don't realise about, about you because you're such... You know, you are a very successful writer in this country. There's not that many writers around who can sustain themselves on their writing. Um, you, as I said earlier, your books have won multiple awards. Many of them have been turned into film and television. Um, and so to gain that kind of insight into the writing process is quite um, special. But I think also people don't understand how much doubt you write from. You know, when, uh, when I say, oh, you know, I get, I get to read Christos's early drafts, right, which is pretty amazing. But... Some of them are pretty crappy. Yeah, so, yeah. You know. <laughs> and they were like, no, no, Christos can't possibly write badly. And I'm like, no, no, that's the process. That's what it is. And, um, and I think that's what you unmask, in a way, in this book through the, the narrator of Christos. There's some really, uh, you know, we, we see that. We see, the, we see the writer strip bare. I think... I think for me... It was partly an instinctive... Uh, it wasn't... Yeah, it was instinct. When I first made the decision to write... And Seven and a Half... felt a little bit like being a young writer again. Like, you know, can't, physically I can't call myself that, but in writing Seven and a Half, I've, I've felt that, like, kind of, let's just go by... by instinct, in a way, with, with what I'm doing. But I, I did... Uh, I was working full-time and I went down part-time. Again, very lucky in the partner I had who understood that because in order to do that, it meant that we couldn't live in the best suburb or the, the sub suburb of choice. You, you, you had to make decisions about how you were going to live that was going to accommodate working half your time as a writer 
and maybe not ever making money. I've been really lucky that I've been able, but that took that actually took some time yeah. to, to to happen. And part of that choice uh, was to take it incredibly seriously and to take it as work, and to go. Whatever is happening in your life, this is your work. And, and just in the same way, unless you're really sick, which makes sense, or you, you're having a sick day at work, I had chosen 1,500 words a day was going to be my work, you know? Even yep. if I was at the desk and knowing that what I was writing was crap, even when the demons of self-doubt were lash, lashing at me, that I was going to do that work. And that... I think gave me a sense of being a writer, even before, even when I was a little bit ashamed of using that word. Because you know, when you you're starting, you feel like you can't call yourself a writer, even though that, that's what you even are. Even you're writing all, all the, the time. time because <laughs> writing is being published. Writing is whatever. And I think that too, that understanding, which felt instinctual, I think, and my family plays a large part in seven and a half, and the notion of work plays a large part mm. in seven and a half is comes from being the child of migrant working class parents whose jobs were in factories, who did have to work much harder than I've ever had to work mm. in my life, mm. whose work gave me the gift of being able to be here at Montalto with all of you today doing this conversation. So there's a, there's a sense where I, I get really frustrated with a kind of romanticisation of what we do. It is work, mm. you know, that, and that's how you be a writer. You do the work of, of writing. That doesn't mean you, you know, I can't promise you success, but that, that's the yep. first I remember basis. that was actually the earliest advice you gave me and the best advice I was ever given when I was starting out as a writer was just do the writing, get it down, get the story down. Like you, you can call yourself a writer if you're writing, but you can't call yourself a writer if you're not. Yes. And I think... I, I think the writer that is Christos in this book, there's a, so there's a really interesting, there's a book within the book, there's a story within the story. So Christos, the narrator, is, is turning over a story that he's wanted to write for a long time, which is the story of Paul. It's, it's a story called Sweet Thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that plays out in the book? Actually, I mean, really the... Sweet thing is, the sweet thing was the thing that had been hovering there for years, way before the pandemic and, mm -hmm. and the actual process of writing this book. So I grew up with two passionate, overwhelming loves, and one was a thing called the not writing, the story, and the other thing was cinema. So that that, that I was, and I've been obsessed with those two forms all my life. Uh, I guess it's all about storytelling, right? Uh, and there is a part of Christos Cholkas who had dreamt of being a filmmaker. Um, and I, I write films. I, I, I've been lucky to work on the periphery of, of, of filmmaking. And if, you know, some of my earliest writings, and I'm talking late primary school, are uh, exercise books filled with the films I wanted to make, and I've, you know, the, the storyboarding, the, the, the idea of making a film, it's been a dream of mine all my life. And I had come to a point, and this is partly knowing filmmakers, that I actually don't have the skill set to be a film director. You know, I think there are... And sweet thing had been a you film. Couldn't, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do the schmoozing. <laughs> don't be crazy. It was, yeah, I, I, I actually don't think I've got... Uh, I mean, you've got to have a... I call it a martial talent. You have to be... It's like a... You have to be able to have a room maybe three times... You know, and this is for a, a, a low-budget film, right, of being able to commandeer these people, you know, as part of the collaboration. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an enormous skill set to, to, to have, and I, I don't have it. Anyway, Sweet Thing was a film that I wanted to do, and I started writing it as a screenplay, hoping I'd direct it. Knew it wasn't going to happen. I started writing it as a, a play, and it didn't work as a play, and I started writing it as a novel. This is about seven, eight years ago, and it wasn't going anywhere. But it didn't leave my consciousness. It kept, it, 
it kept being a story I didn't want to let go of. And it found its form in Seven and a Half. And I've got, there's a, a, a lovely writer, Chris Flynn, who I did a, I did, you know, I interviewed him for his last book, Mammoth. Hilarious a, book. It's a wonderful great book. Wonderful book. And before we, we did the actual interview, like kind of just sitting down, I, st- I spoke to him about Sweet Thing. I don't think I gave him the title, but I said, I've got this idea, but it's over 10 years old. And he went, well, then you should let it go. It's clearly not going to happen. And I think it was him saying that to me that made me realise, no, no, there's something about what I want to do with this that is going to find its place. And it's found its place in a novel that is about the creative process. That it is... So I think for me writing Seven and a Half, and, you know, as you said, Angela, it's not only the first draft, and then it's the rewriting and rewriting and the, the working on it again made me realise that part of what I owe a love of beauty and a love of writing is a love of cinema. The title itself is a homage to one of my favourite films, the Italian um, F- uh, Fellini film Eight and a Half, which is about a filmmaker wanting to make a film. <laughs> it just felt right to, make, to, to give it that title. I was reflecting on you calling it Seven and a Half, knowing that it was the homage to Eight and a Half, and I was thinking, it's typical of Christos to go one number earlier rather than one number later. But then I was thinking nine and a half, no, that would have got it mixed up with that dreadful Vicky <laughs> Rourke film. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so you've... It's, it's quite beautiful the way you find a home for Sweet Thing in the book. And it's written... So well, I'll get you to give us a pricey of, the, of that story, but it's written in a very filmic way. You actually describe it as if we are watching a film. There's several yes. scenes in it. And you, you've said that you... I think it was the final scene that came to you first, wasn't it? Yeah, so if, you, if I go back to my notes with Sweet... And to, to explain Sweet Thing... Because uh, for years I've been... Um, we are talking about it earlier, you know... I, and going right back to the, the Genet, to some of the, the writers I first were really important to me. And I think this was as a, a young queer kid. You know, the writing of sex, the erotic, has been really, really... Uh, both a liberation for me and a confusion for me. It's, you know, it's... it's I think... It, I think we're in a world where nuance is not... where we're suspi- suspicious of nuance and it's like you have to take a position for or against. And I'm really much more interested in, in that space in, in between, really. Uh, I... I have... So it's about a porn actor who has worked in gay porn in the 90s He's made a life with the woman he loves here in Australia, in the north coast of New South Wales. He has a son who he loves, Neil, 19, and he gets this amazing offer to go back for a weekend to the United States by a client, and he hasn't been back to the US for a, for a very long time. The reason I wanted to, to create a story about pornography was to try actually to work out my conflicted feelings about pornography. The you know, the, the, how absolutely important the erotic t- has been to me as a gay man, and particularly in the kind of liberation sense, but, you know, just the pleasure of sex too, like I don't... But also how conflicted I am about the exploitation of it. So I wanted... That's, that's the choice to make sense of why I've, I've, I, 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 I did this, sto- this story, why I wanted to tell this story. And I actually wanted to, to use a porn actor that I had loved that I, you know, that I, you know, to be, I'm sorry, to be really crude, that I'd wanked over it, you know? Like, I wanted to be really honest about what it is, about, you know, yep. this experience. The erotic. Exactly. Erotic attraction. And... But you did tell me not to Google him when I was trying to do some research. <laughs> <laughs> I probably meant your daughter shouldn't be. <laughs> uh, but when it... Uh, I, uh, so I had his face, I had his uh, persona, and then... The first thing I wrote was the ending, which I, I kind of use. I, I wrote it as a script. And he's come home. He's, he's been in America and he has seen his brother for the first time in 20 years and his brother hasn't escaped. His brother is in that hell that can happen when you don't have money and you don't have opportunity and drugs have destroyed you. And he knows they can never go back to the States. He, you know, that he will 
probably never see his brother again. And he comes back and he's in the car and his son is driving and his wife is behind him and Van Morrison's Sweet Thing comes on and the beauty of the song moves him to absolute howling because he knows he's lucky, that he's got, you know, that he's, he's got something he's, that has not been possible for his brother. And that was, the, I, I had written that scene, that was the, the, the closing scene of the film in my head. And also the opening scene is where we see him working, again, work, with his son on the roof of a house in, in, in the country. Mm. Uh, and I thought, just as if I was going to make that film, I wanted to show something about the physicality of the, of the father and son together to mm. give them a sense of who, who they are mm. in the... Mm. I mean, so, Ange, part of the... You know, I write 800 words a day, except on Sundays, which I learned from Damascus, that it's the ancient wisdom is absolutely right. You should, you take, should totally not work on a Sunday. I've well, been reading about that too. I don't care too. if you choose Saturday or Friday. Yeah, but or you need a day when you don't work. A day of, work. yeah, yeah. Is, you know. That's day of ancient, leisure, of idleness. Absolutely. Of rest. Please take that on board, everybody. Okay? Don't <laughs> let, the, don't let the, the work creep into that day. It's really vital, actually. Yeah, I think... Uh, uh, I think actually taking a day off for me also means it's actually the day and I've chosen Sunday because my you know my background is orthodox Christian so Sunday made sense but and you know growing up in this in this country in this world Sunday was a day of leisure until very very recently but I also I try not to use I try not to look at the phone I try not to to be on the computer I just to to, screen free days they, they rock to have that sense of Rest, I think, yeah. and serenity. And um, focus. There's yeah. yes, something very precious about that. So when you're not... But you started by saying, so you're doing, you're doing 800 words a day, every day except Sunday. Uh, but just talking about the sweet thing, I just, you know, part... It wasn't, it wasn't until I sat down with the first draft and then thought about that, that work you do of, ah, oh, there is a theme about work here. There is a theme about family... And you don't know this until you're going back and looking at the work. So why, I just realised that the story, yes, ostensibly is about pornography, but actually it was something about family I wanted to get to. And I also wanted to get to something about the fortune I feel to have this life. And as I said earlier, I think the reason I, have, I am fortunate is because of the backbreaking, and literally, in my father's case, backbreaking work that they had to do. And that I will never have, and I, you know that that I, I'm here because of that kind of sacrifice. And what does family mean? And ostensibly, yes, the story is about a porn actors, but actually, it's about family. And and it was only in the finishing the first draft and going back to it that I realised there was something about family that I wanted to weave into. Which is seven and a half. Which is woven throughout, and. In, I think the other, you know, it, it, I think the other kind of... Because this story is very much Christos the narrator in dialogue with Christos the writer. Um, and, uh, and you are having that com- constant conversation with yourself about work and about questioning the validity of writing as work. Yes. And that plays out. There's, there's also that, there's that bit that I wanted to very quickly touch on because I think this is... The first time I read it, I kind of... <laughs> okay. there's, a, there's a conversation between Christos, the narrator, and a friend who's called Andrea in this story. And they're having a, 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 they're, they meet up on the South Coast and he tells her that he wants to write about beauty, that he's sick of writing about politics with a capital P. He just wants to write beauty. And she says, you can't write about beauty. You don't have that talent. And then she starts paying out on him. And the first time I read that, I was like, who's Andrea Christos? Like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to have her. But then, of course, on the second reading, it was like, ah, this is Christos having a conversation with himself. And I was really intrigued by that conflict in you. Can you, can you elaborate a bit on that? Where did that notion that you couldn't write beauty come from? Especially when you're writing such a beautiful book. I... Th- I th- I think it 
does have to... Why I'm hesitating is, you know, I'm a successful writer. I know that, uh, even though that you, that really doesn't quell the self-doubt, right? <laughs> that, that, that never goes away. Uh, and, why I'm, uh, and, and I have a fortunate life, so I know that. But I think coming from the background I did, it never felt like I... It just felt like for a long time that beauty belonged to people who were born into beauty, <laughs> who were born into a world where they could... They'd grown up with art, they'd grown up with knowledges that I, I didn't necessarily have. I think it was looking, you know, just being, wondering if I was an imposter. <laughs> and I know a lot of people feel that, like, of course, that sense of, you know, you talk to any artist, really. That, that sense of not, you know, have I a right to do this? But I do think that I thought I actually didn't have the education, I didn't have the class to write about beauty. I think that that was something that had been there for a very long time. So that's, that's part of it. And part of it is, you know, you're absolutely... <laughs> Andrea isn't... Everyone has... A, people ask me, who's Andrea? And Andrea is me. Andrea is the other part of me going... You write grunge really well, Christos, but you can't do yeah, beauty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do... It is, those, some, it is those voices in your head that say you... It doesn't matter how successful you are, you're no good. Mm. You know, you're no good in the way that it, that it will matter in the, in, in the long run, which is about creating something beautiful. And seven and a half is a way of, of me saying, I'm going to risk it that I might fail and try and write something beautiful. But the beautiful I want to write has to be... You're beautiful. It's your beauty. Uh, which yeah, is and it's also, you know, the, the, the notion... Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. You go. There's a theme in the book which is that that going into Hades, you know, that, that, that to, to, and it's a really, a strange relationship between truth and beauty, which is a further question about politics and art, but we've, tr you know, that to really, to really be a, an artist, you, you have to make that descent, I think, into a world that is the world of dreams and the world of, uncertainty in the world of confusion, like a risk. Mm. And the best metaphor for it in terms of that I have is that notion of Hades. So I'm not saying hell. I think hell is a different concept. It's the underworld, you know, that... Uh, it's Orpheus. Yeah, and it's the, the, the Orpheus myth. Yeah. And beauty... In fact, all the great artists have known this. All the, all the great religions have known this. Beauty is not pretty. It's not prettiness. Beauty is not... Uh, benign. Clean. Yeah, it's not necessarily it, it, clean. It is also uh, truly terrifying. It is the notion of the sublime that you will be transfigured by or struck, or, or struck. Ab abs absolutely. And I wanted to write a novel that uh, gave a sense of what that meant as as a person, as a writer going into into telling stories. Uh, how you have to be prepared, I think, for that risk-taking. And I'm saying risk-taking because I'm going to be really honest. I think one of the things that I find difficult about my present age is people are not very... People are very terrified of risk. You know, people our age are or the age we're living in is a risk-averse age? I, I, it's a good question. It feels like it is our age because I think we identify risk with failure um, and there's no, there's no way you're going to, there's no way you can do really good work. You know this, Ange, everyone here who writes, who makes films, who, who, who paints, who, uh, who makes wine. sculpts, who does these yeah, beautiful yeah. sculptures. You, 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 yes. You're going to have to, you, you have to take that risk and I think, you know, why does Christos, the narrator in this book, bang on about beauty? is because beauty is frightening to actually deal with 
honestly, and, and I think it's easier to, to shy away from that and to write... Pretty. Yeah, and to write poems. Not that you've ever, no one could ever accuse you of writing pretty, let's yeah, face yeah. it. But, um, but yeah, to, to not take the risk and you end up with a very kind of bland kind of uh, narratives, predictable, um, even samey. Yes. Whereas no one can say that about this work. And, and, and again, one of the things I love about it is that. Um, the sense of place is so strong and it's, you know, it's interesting talking about this being a metaphor for home or a book very much about home because the sense of place is incredibly strong. I mean, you, you create an incredible sense of place per se. I mean, anyone who's read Damascus, how transporting was that novel to feel that we were in the ancient world. This novel immerses us in the ancient world that is Australia. It, it acknowledges that tens of thousands of year history and takes from that landscape to the writing, you know, there's this beautiful relationship between writing beauty and the beauty in the landscape, I think, which is one of the great pleasures of this novel. It is actually being in the world. I mean, the, the writer in the book begins, he goes to this place because he's confused about what, he, what he's doing. Is he a writer? Can he write in this present? And it's... He puts his phone downstairs and he rarely checks it. He, he makes a vow that he'll only check it twice a day. And it's, if you don't do that, you are in the danger of looking out there and not seeing. You know, everything, everything mm. becomes the screen. And I didn't, you know, it's just... Just when you said that, in the car coming up, I said to Angela and Jamila and, and Harry that I'd been listening to a podcast the other day by an amazing Italian scholar, one of those really effusive uh, people who knows their, 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 what they do. Um, and he studied ancient Persian culture. So it was, a, it was a podcast on Zoroastrianism, which I've always been fascinated about. To, to get to the... And he said something that really stayed with me, and I learned this in Damascus, but I didn't, no one had articulated it, I certainly hadn't, where he said, actually, people ask me, do you feel sometimes a bit of a regret that you're a scholar of the ancients and you're not in the present world, that you don't know what's going on? And he went, that's absolute rubbish. <laughs> he said, to understand the ancient world, you have to understand language. You have to understand how language changes. You have to understand how culture changes. You have to understand how humans change. You have to interrogate that every time you, you read an ancient text and go, how was this written? From what position was it written? What mm. language was it written? He said, I'm always present in the world. Mm. And I thought, you're at, that's what I learned in Damascus. I, I disappeared from the bloody screen. That's all that happened. But I read theology, I read philosophy, I, you know, I read the Bible and the Quran and the, ancient, the, the Hebrew Bible and it was like, okay, I am, I'm not out of the world, I'm actually with texts that are central to whether you Western agree with them or not, where, 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 yeah. where we are. And I, I just, that, him saying that, I, I think that's what we're losing, or I'm losing, I'm not going to talk for you guys, I'm talking for myself. <laughs> I do worry about the screen, and I think the, it's even though pornography is a much white, is more white hot morally. I think what pornography does and what we do when we look up our, our phones is not dissimilar. Yeah, that's a very. Yeah. I know that's not a popular thing to say, but I worry that that is, in terms of the psychically, if yeah. I can use that term, what what is happening in your brain, I think it is a very similar thing. And I... I've got to tell you something. I'll tell you something funny in a minute. I just want to put um, you, the audience, on notice that we are going to open for questions in a minute. I want to remind you that a question ends in a question mark. <laughs> also note that your question should be shorter than the possible answer that Christos might give. Um, but I, I just... Which should be easy. I, this, sorry, this, I just go... This conversation is hilarious because... 
not hilarious about the social... Christos doesn't do social media. He's way too intelligent for that. Um, but his name is so synonymous with the slap that after the events of the Oscars this week, there's been absolute outcry on social media saying, where is Christos Chalkas when we need him? <laughs> it is true, actually, because I don't... I'm not on social media and... Uh, and people started sending me emails and I didn't quite make the connection for <laughs> ages. Well, my favourite my favorite thing was so many of my nieces and nephews were texting me clearly... Ex- it was like I existed, finally. <laughs> I was on social media. They're talking about him on social media. My favourite one was... Uh, my niece Zoe texted me one going, Christos Cholkas will be rolling in his grave. <laughs> I didn't know you were dead, Uncle Chris. <laughs> Not yet. Just to social um, media, Zoe. <laughs> so um, the lovely Jamila has the microphone, the roving mic, roving mic, if you would like to raise your hand if you have a question for Christos. So when you were talking about having to go to Hades, do you feel that all your previous novels have actually been like a catharsis for you to enable you to write seven and a half? Because it does seem to be a much softer, um, not as confronting, and I wonder whether that's given you an opportunity to actually uh, expand perhaps the way you write. Good question. It is a good question. I I mean, I I wonder how much of it is possibly kind of a very simple, um, maybe... uh, Arguably banal, but it true. Uh, there's truth in it. Age, you know, that there is. It's a, it's a it's a novel too of a middle-aged person, kind of con- looking back on life, on storytelling, on and and I think there is an element where you, for me at least, uh, that age. You dis, you know, it, there's a, a different relationship you have to to the world, so a, a different relationship you have to time, a different relationship you have to anger and rage and, and, and the body and how the body works. And I think that's an element in Seven and a Half too. That it, um, I think the... But it's also... And part of this is why I think of age is, you know, it's a novel by someone who is reflecting back on what writing is and, and creating is. And, the, the moment where I really understood that descent into Hades was writing a book called Dead Europe, which was my third novel, which was a really difficult... You know, that, that novel... There were two points in the writing of that, and it took me seven years to write Dead Europe. I was very... Uh, a very difficult novel to write, partly the subject matter, partly the... the I was still... A, Fine, honing my skills or trying, you know, the, the questions of craft, but also it took me to really dark places, you know, and, and there were two moments where I stopped what I was doing and said step back because the question of ethics came into, into play. And that is one of the risks, you know, uh, I made a distinction before about Hades as a metaphor and the notion of hell. And I write about the evil eye in, in Seven and a Half, right? I write about a protection that I think I got from my, my, my family, kind of an old knowledge that in a secular world you don't have. And I'm really, you know, if, uh, I'm really glad that I have this, an awareness of, of this old... of this old world of, of awe and danger and evil. I think the, the question of evil. And I realised that there, I could make certain decisions in writing that novel that would take me into exploring an evil that I didn't want to be contaminated by. And I think you do... You have to choose, you know, choose that. And I've seen writers and I've seen filmmakers who I think have... And it's because it's seductive, the notion of transgression, of I'm going to go as far as I can. Um, but that then you're unleashing forces that can be... I know I'm sounding really... I don't mean to be, but I do... This is to your question. I think there are... You, you make certain decisions and go, I will not pursue this because I think it opens... Then I'm not falling into Hades, I'm falling into hell. And hell is a, 
It's a metaphor again, right? I'm not, you know, you don't have to be a believer to understand what I'm saying, but that there are some experiences that uh, contaminate you, and that's what happens to Paul's brothers. Well, yeah, and I'm actually thinking that one of the things, you know, that one of the things that you have become as an older person is kinder to yourself. Yes, that's that's true. I think. And that's not, that's not a bad thing. No, I, I know. I think, uh, I think you, uh, the darkest part of, the, of seven and a half years of the Paul and his brother story. And I think that for a long time you wear, we all do, you, all, you know, that guilt of having survived things that, you know, you, you, you've buried people you love, you've buried friends who haven't been able to survive the... The harshness of the of of the world, and mm. it took me a long while not to feel guilty about mm. that. Mm. Yeah, I think. Mm. But I can't do. Uh, is it a so, it, 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 if uh, I don't know if softer is the word I'd use, but yes, there is a, a sense of uh, you know of not transgressing in similar ways that I did 20 years ago because I'm a different, I'm a different age, I'm a different person, I've learned things and, and I'm kinder to myself. Probably that's true. Which doesn't mean you've lost your edge, can I just say. <laughs> no, you know, it's not the same thing. I don't, I don't think the notion of... <laughs> fashions... This is the thing that I... It's impossible to convey sometimes to someone who's just starting in, and you can start, the great thing about writing is actually you can start at 15, you can start at 75, right? But that, you know, you, part of what happens in this world is fashion. And, and you know, that the, mm. um, and if you're gonna pursue writing seriously, you have to find a space to shut that the fashion and the white, I call it white noise, I've always called it white noise, out from your life. Because you will, um, what, bec what is fashionable one moment will change so fast, it changes on a dime. And, uh, and if what you're trying to do is keep up, you will fail yourself yeah. as an artist, I think. Absolutely. Was... It's like if we all knew what the next big thing was, we'd all be writing it. And, and that, you know, um, sorry, I won't talk. I, I, want, I do want to give opportunities for others. And great example of a shorter question than yeah. the answer. Um, <laughs> pretty much guarantee a longer answer from Christos. <laughs> Would anyone else like to ask a question? Christian, thank you for being so honest and articulate about uh, the conflicts and, and doubts. It does surprise me, though, that you still clearly have these these doubts and concerns uh, in the artistic process when you've been so successful. And I wonder whether uh, having achieved the level of success makes it easier or harder to go through the process. I mean, on one way, the, the what is, you know, uh, so much easier is that I have the time what, 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 and that really was the, uh, the slap, you know, the, it brought me, and Wayne, because he's part of the, the, the it, it brought us, it brought us a, a financial security that we had never thought would be possible, um, and so it brought me time. So in that way, of course, it's easier, uh, in, but in terms of, uh, doubt, it, it brings itself, it brings with it other questions, you know, of, I'd always thought, I, I knew I was going to, you know, and there is, there might, you know, there's something about the ego that says, I am going to be a writer, a poet, a, 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 a painter, a film, like, that, that, it has to be there. I knew I wanted to be a writer. I always thought my, uh, my writing was going to, that I'd need to do another job to support myself. So that, that's been the major change. 
the self-doubt doesn't go away. And I think it also, it took me a while too to, uh, to what I was saying before about chasing, to, I think part of what I'm trying to say in seven and a half, and why, I am going to answer the question, I know I'm going a long way around it, but one of the reasons my, the novel I'd started before seven and a half didn't work was that I was trying to write a novel of this time and to answer all the political questions and to, and it felt false and it felt... All those things we have fights about. The yeah, pub. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it, it didn't feel like it was coming from myself. That the, it, it felt like I was trying... I was trying to be a journalist rather than a writer, right? And the problem with, you know... Uh, it wasn't a problem. What happened with the slap was there was no... I didn't plan this to be a best-selling novel. It just... In a way, it felt like a relief after a novel like Dead Europe, you know. But it also came because I think I was in the right moment at that time to go, wow, there's something strange happening and new in Australian culture, and particularly in a city like Melbourne, but across all our cities, for the first time... There is a world, a middle-class world, which is no longer Anglo-Saxon and Celtic. It looks, it looks different. It feels different. It speaks different. It's entered, it's entered Australia, and I think that's what made, you know, I think that's what people responded to the slap. But I think for a while it was like, do I keep trying to write a bestseller? Do I keep trying to write a novel that is about how we live in in the world? Do I try and make, do I try and make Mum and Dad happy because <laughs> they they're like oh, thank God he can he can make a living, <laughs> and I realised no I have to I have to write the books I, I need to write, and so in every way to your question I feel very fortunate I think I've been I, I think it is easier because it being financially easier let's be honest makes it easier in the world, but in terms of uh, the really. The argument, work, yeah, yeah the, the, the argument between Andrea and Christos in the novel, Am I Good, that doesn't go away. That, I just don't think that... And maybe uh, it shouldn't, you know. It took me a long... Um, sorry, I've got a call time on you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I hate to do it, but we are about at time. Yes. And I do want to ask you the last question before we finish up because um, I know that people are going to want to get their books signed by you and I'm also sure that if they have other questions, you'd be happy to answer them yeah, in the yeah, signing queue. Yeah, I'm very, very happy. Please. Um, you know, um, but I just want to ask you, I think it's a perfect segue from what you've just said to what are you writing now? <laughs> so it's... Uh, it's called The In-Between, which is a working title. I don't know if it will last. It's, and, and same process of... Uh, I did this time... Because I do other work as, as well around it, but 500 words a day. And it was a simple idea about two, a relationship that forms between two people and it takes place in five long chapters um, and it traces a relationship from its beginning on five separate days. Um, and we get... Not consecutive days. Not consecutive days. So it, it, it goes across three and a half years. And uh, and I'm hope the reason I'm calling it the, the in-between is that, that in a way you as readers can fill in the gaps nice. by reading these, these, nice. these five different days and seeing if you, you know, in a way engaging you to to tell the story of what you think happened in between the, the, Love the book. Love it. But... Uh, Can't wait to read the draft. The, well, <laughs> the draft... And the question I will ask you, Ange, and I'll ask all of you is, uh, in terms of the next draft, what do I do with COVID? Yeah, right. You know, so when I started it, I kind of put it... I imagined a post-COVID world and... I'm wondering whether now that it's was... getting harder, isn't it? To yeah, imagine and a maybe, world. maybe part of. <laughs> anyway, yeah. that, let's that... take this up after yes. on the way home. Yes. All right, and on that note, <laughs> please join me in thanking Christos for a wonderful <laughs> presentation today, and Angela Savage, who is always wonderful. That was Angela Savage in conversation with Christos Chalkas, recorded on March thirty first, twenty twenty two as part of Books and Ideas at Montalto.
The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.